Their own experience with grief led them to the place where now they minister to people all around the world, helping people with some of their lives' most difficult circumstances. They are Steve and Karen Nicola. I'm John Bradshaw, and this is our conversation. Steve and Karen Nicola, thanks very much for being here. I appreciate you. You, you, you coming here today. Thanks so much for having us, John. Oh, we've we got so much good stuff to talk about. But before we do, before we talk about your ministry with grief, let's back up. Let's talk about you. Where do you both hail from? Tell me a little bit about your past. Well, we, uh, we currently live in the beautiful foothills of the Sierra Nevada Mountains in the little town of Auburn, California. And we love living there. It's close to the to skiing, uh, to beautiful Lake Tahoe is not very far away. Mm. And we love living there. Karen, you guys are Californians from way back, both of you? Born and reared. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Bo- both of us, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So um, earlier in life, you were both educators, if I understand that correctly. Mm-hmm. In, in, what, in what sphere? What kind of educating? Well, when I, I graduated from Walla Walla University back in 1980 and taught school in, um, in Anchorage, Alaska, mm-hmm. taught school in Crescent City, California, and, and taught school in Santa Rosa and also in Hillsburg, California. Yeah. So I've taught everything from third grade to adult inmates. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay. Which set you up, I think, for the ministry that you're doing now. Karen, what about you? Well, absolutely it did. I've been a teacher by heart for all of my life. Um, started with teaching kids how to swim in the backyard pool. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I didn't go back to get my formal education until I was 40. I grabbed three bachelors, dove right into academy teaching, and I've taught everything from first grade through high school. And you have three bachelor's degrees? Yes, and then I picked up a master's along the way because it just was a good thing to do. Yeah, sure. So what, are the, what were your degrees in? Communication. Yeah. Religion. The communication one evidently worked. Yeah. So, I think yeah, it does, yeah. 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 Religion and? And elementary education. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a big load of, of classwork. So yeah. you survived that on your master's. Your master's is in what? Quality education. Oh, fantastic. Okay, okay. And clearly set you up for what you're doing now. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So how did the two of you get together? Well, it was many, many years ago. Uh, we were, I was working as a counselor at a summer camp in Northern California, and um, Karen was happened to be working with another ministry program that summer, yeah, and they came up, go. and they they were uh, relaxing and, and kind of collecting themselves at the end of the summer, and that's where we met. And I said, I think I'd like to get to know this person a little better. Mm-hmm. So as our school year provide, uh, started there at uh, Pacific Union College, we uh, we started dating later on in, in the spring of 1975, I believe it was. And that so. was that? That was it. It was that true was it. love, and nobody else. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you just coasted all the way to the to the yeah. altar. We did. Very we did, nice. So. Well, that was the the easy and the happy and the joyful part of life. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Was, wasn't always that way for you though. You you no. had an experience as parents that parents like me who've never been through what you've been through wish we'll never have. Let's yeah. talk about the death of your son. What happened? Go ahead, Karen. Well, we'd like to talk about his life first, yeah. um, because he lived. That's it. that's so important. Mm-hmm. And um, when he was diagnosed with leukemia, he was just under two years old. We were making a transition from leaving Alaska and leaving education, actually, 
Uh, Steve felt the call for literature ministry in his life, and I was totally supportive of that. So we, along with several other families, left Anchorage and moved to Montana to be a literature evangelist. Mm. But that transition that takes place between teaching to LE work um, meant that as soon as his contract was finished teaching, he had to be in Montana because your sole income is made by your sales. So he left Dawson and I in Anchorage because we were waiting for escrow to close on our home. Mm -hmm. And it didn't close, and it didn't close, and it didn't close, and it had been four weeks now, and he was alone, and we were in Alaska, and uh, we were pregnant with baby number two, and due the end of August, and we thought, we need to get together as a family. Steve really needed the support. Why didn't you tell us why you needed that support? Well, working in Montana was a lot different than working in Anchorage, Alaska. How so? Anchorage, Alaska, at the time that we were there, was a very transitional time. There was a lot of... um, of oil money. There was a lot of servicemen and people in the Anchorage area. A lot of interest in spiritual things during that time. So people were coming and going and being able to make decisions on their own without any family influence. Whereas down in Billings, Montana, people were had been living there for generations and a little more set in their ways. So it took a little more um, a little more time and interest in, in working with people to get them to have an interest in having spiritual materials for themselves or spiritual materials for their children or to have an interest even in their health. So um, it was a much more challenging start to work in Montana than it was in Alaska. Hmm. And you were reunited in the fullness well, of time, I'm sure? Yeah. We, we were. We came down in that month, left the sale of the house um, signatures with friends there, we arrived, and shortly afterwards, our son came down with pneumonia, took him to uh, the pediatric office that was recommended to us from a friend in Anchorage. And, um, but he didn't respond to the antibiotics, so mm-hmm. we took him back in. At this stage, you had no idea of the seriousness? No, none of- at all. We were anxious looking for a home to settle in, yeah. but again, our house hadn't closed, so we couldn't put money on property we really wanted to buy. And two weeks to the day, the doctor gave us the diagnosis that our son had leukemia. And we flew out of Billings to California, never to return. So this was eventually going to take his life. But at the time, did you have any sense of how serious it is? You know, there's leukemia and there's leukemia, particularly today now. There are some leukemias that are eminently treatable. Oh, very much so. So at the time, did you have any sense of how how serious this was, or was it something you figured you'd be able to get through? I think it's a really good question, John. You know, when anybody gets a a life-threatening diagnosis, and if it's your child or yourself, generally we race to the to the worst scenario. Sure. So as soon as we had that scenario, I thought my son would be would be gone within a matter of months. Oh. You know, so yeah, we we knew and we knew it was serious. This was 1983. Yeah. And so leukemia, childhood leukemia, he had a, acute lymphocytic leukemia, um, was really and it was he was seriously sick. Um, they when they finished taking the bone marrow sample, they said he is so sick that he needs to be seen right away. Oh, well. We had three choices. We could go to Denver, we could go to Seattle, or we could go to Stanford's Children's Hospital in Palo Alto. And since we had some family in California, we said, we'll go to California. Yeah. 
And um, he was a sick little guy there for a while. But um, the chemotherapy that they gave him was enough to reverse it. And within a few weeks, he, he was considered to be in remission. Oh, well, how about that? Now, before we talk about how this progressed, tell me about your son. What was he like? <laughs> Go ahead, Annie. Is, uh... The sweetest blonde-haired little boy on the planet. Mm. He loved his mama and he loved his daddy. He would organize his shoes oh, yeah. just right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, after his sister was born, if there was a toy she was playing with, he would always replace that one with another one. He just had this yeah. amazing... Mm-hmm. Uh, joy for life. We, Dawson and I, particularly enjoyed the um, twilight time at yeah. sunset yeah. and watching that evening star come out and sweet, sweet memories. So t- today you work with people who are processing grief, which is a brutal emotion. Mm-hmm. It can be debilitating and, and disabling, as, as you know. Talk to me about what you were going through at the time. So you have this perfect little blonde-haired boy who, and you remember all those sweet things, as of course you would. And now you're faced with the idea that he's going to be taken away from you. And at that age, he was how old? Well, well he was, was two when he yeah. was diagnosed. Go, okay. and, but he went into remission. Right. And so, so with remission, our faith was just yeah. f- overflowing. God has heard our prayers. Our son is getting better. Yeah. Um, we, we arrived in California homeless, jobless, insuranceless, a very sick little baby boy, mm-hmm. and a very pregnant mom. Huge needs. Lots. Huge needs. Yeah. And by six months after that, we had a home. We were insured. Steve was employed. Our son was in remission, and our baby girl arrived safely. Emotionally, this was a roller coaster. Oh, it was huge. If you look at the stress, you know, the stress level of... Yeah, where 300 is the the max. We were probably in the 400s at that point. We had so much stress at that time. And yet I want to give credit to the peacefulness of God's presence with us. We weren't wringing our hands. We learned very early on how to live with cancer. And that, as any cancer survivor or family knows, you just do it one day at a time. And God says, as your days, so shall your strength be. And we just leaned into that reality because the other reality was a hospital full of bald-headed babies. Yeah, that's right. We were finding, John, that faith is, is a verb um, at times like this. And you learn about faith and how, how connected you are with your faith structure with God at times like this. And we learned that this is not the time to develop your faith. The time to develop a trusting relationship with God is beforehand. Not that it can't be developed during, because we certainly developed more of our faith during that time. But to be, there was, you know, he had a year and a half of being in remission. And then we got the, we got the, you know, the, we had took him in for his routine blood tests. And the doctors called us back up and said, you know, we believe that he possibly may have relapsed. Okay, so you didn't have any indication in your interactions with Dawson, that there was anything amiss. No, he wasn't Not acting. At all. You know, Not he at was all. initially, but on his, when yep. he relapsed, it was all internal at that point. Yep. So we took him back in, and they did did a did some more blood work, and came back and told us, "Yep, his he has totally relapsed at this point." So you're involved in ministry. You've given your life to the service of God, and you're relating to God, and God is allowing your son to hit the bottom of the valley, then shoot back up to the mountaintop. And now you're careening down towards the valley again. Tell me what this did 
to your relationship with God and how you related to him. That was faith rattling. Yeah, that was... The rug got pulled out from underneath We would be less than honest if we said it wasn't hard. I mean, my work was devoted entirely to to sharing Jesus with people, you know, daily, and I loved my work. But we've learned that people, even though we're close to Christ, doesn't give us a pass. Right. And we've, you look at, the, at God's word, and you'll see those closest to Christ still suffered loss and death. God, Even, lost, God lost his son. God lost his own son, yeah. So I remember one night, I was just face down in front of my home. Our son was, was dying at this point. And you knew, you knew that? We knew that. Oh, oh yes. yeah. Okay, so let me ask you this. I don't want to hold well, up, you up, but I do want to ask this. So you got, the, you got the news relapsed, and so, so, well, we'll treat him again, and we went through this once before, and, and so forth. But at that point, no treatment would cure him. They yeah. told you that up front? Yes. Yeah, we, yes. Well, okay. we, we, my father was a physician, and he yeah. kind of helped me understand. He says, son, when an oncologist tells you, we'll do whatever you guys decide to do. If you want to retreat him, that's fine. If you don't, and most oncologists I know say, we're going to fight this thing because yeah, yeah, yeah. if, if we have any kind of hope. So we decided for a while that we would try it, but it was so stressful. Yeah. With, so a, with the additional on, on his little body to have the additional chemo. And by now he's how old? Three and a half. Yeah. So now he's able to, and it was it was so hard because there was he still wasn't able to verbalize a lot of questions sure. as to why. And I remember many times he'd be on the table at the doctor's office and they would have to give him injections into his spine. Yeah. And um, it was a very telling thing for me. That was probably the hardest part of his treatments was when they would have to do the intrathecal injections. And his little eyes would look at me and just like, Daddy, why are you letting them do this to me? And I began to realize years later that God says when these things are happening in our lives, I couldn't explain it to him then, that it was we were trying to do it for his best good. And God many times, I think, just looks at us and he goes, I can't explain it right now, but I love you and you'll have to trust me that we're trying to do the best we can here. So I remember... Not probably about a week or two before he died, I was out front bargaining with God in our little home. We had a nice little home up in the mountains on some acreage all by itself up on the top of this ridge. And and it was nighttime. It was in February. And I was saying, God, whatever it takes, take me, take the house, take the take the cars, <laughs> what little bit we have in the, in the you know, you, you bargain. And I realized that God's, God didn't think anything less of us at that time, but I was desperate, and Karen was doing the same thing. And, and so, yeah, with, within a few weeks, he took a, a major turn for the worst, mm. and uh, bad enough that we had to call his doctor to come down to the house one, one Thursday night because um, he was in so much pain. And she gave him the medication. Our, our pediatrician stayed with us the whole entire night. All through the night. And... Um, Early, early on a Friday morning on March 1st, he, uh, he took his last breath and, and died. And for those of us in the Christian community, when we, we have certain expectations that we think God should, ought, must do for us. Sure. And I realized at that time that my heart didn't totally understand the heart of God. That I had expectations that I thought, you know, God should jump through XYZ hoops and God said, I can't do that, but you'll have to trust me that I'm walking this with you. But it was a painful process, and it was painful for many years, John. And that's my question. How long, it's a twofold question, how, how, how hard 
Did it rattle your faith? And how long was it before you really got your feet back on what you felt like was solid ground in terms of your faith? Well, see, this is uh, 2023. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still processing We're some. We're still acid. finding our foothold. Um, I know for me, um, and we talk about this in our in our seminars that we do that that I know as a man, I come hardwired to provide and sure. protect. That's right. And so my job was to protect and provide for my family, and I couldn't stop my son from dying. And so as a man, as a, as, a, as a dad, as a Christian, I felt I'd failed, John. Now, obviously, it's silly. I don't have a cure for cancer. But we men, many times, will look at uh, uh, something that happened to our family and still feel, even though it was totally out of our, out of our making any difference, we still feel responsible. Sure. For many years, I felt responsible for my son's death. If I had just prayed harder, mm-hmm. if I just had more faith, did I have any sins in my life that I wasn't dealing with, that I was holding back, that God couldn't have healed my son? All those sort of things that God must have just been shaking his head going, no, 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 you know, I, I still love you. But it took me many years, probably up to almost 20 years, of not having, losing faith in God, but, but not... I had kind of a low-grade anger toward God. I spoke recently with a man who lost a son, an infant, a young son, and uh, he's in ministry. He's a great guy. He has position of responsibility. His faith has never quite recovered. Not quite. There's still there's still aspects of his faith where it's really challenging. Is it is it hard to talk about losing your son today? Is is it is it difficult? No, it's not, because as we tell, whether it's our clients personally or whether it's a whole audience or this audience, today we do the work that God has called us to do as grief educators and grief coaches, not because our son died, but because God has brought healing. Yes. And that faith in his healing is as absolutely steadfast as the foundation of this building. And if I could back up the story just briefly, you know, that moment that Dawson breathed his last breath was at just that time, that darkest moment, just before the break of day starts to come. So it was physically dark in his room. And I had an expectation that God would show up with some kind of angel wing kind of just brushing our back or a light glow through the window or some kind of feeling of embrace and there was nothing and um, we wept we knelt we prayed our Dr. Sarah our pediatrician was there and for weeks I wrestled with God I said so God where were you when this moment took place And it was a couple months later when we were talking with the pastor who came to be with us that morning. And he told us the rest of the story. As he walked Dr. Sarah out to her car that morning, she turned to him and said, you know, I've been with many parents whose children have died. And Dr. Sarah was not a Christian at all. No. But a wonderful human being. She was amazing. And she turned to him and she said, but I have never been with a family that has been as peaceful as Steve and Karen. Mm. And then the whole, the, the bigger picture began to 
reveal itself. That yes, we did have peace. There was no question that we were peace-filled. And where was God? In our hearts with his peace. Yes, and that, that really affirmed my faith that while I had these questions and these railings, and I had many of them for months, weeks, and years following, my little girl, about age three, now we're about a year and a half after Dawson has died, and we're driving home one day in the car, and she's sitting in the front seat with her little legs straight out, and she looks at me and goes, Mommy, what's hair made out of? (laughs) I kind of took a breath, and I thought about it, and I said, how can I explain to her about what hair is made out of, because she has not had the chemistry, the biology, the physiology classes to understand the molecular structure of hair being dead protein cells. So (laughs) I'm looking at that, I'm going, well, honey, I don't think I can give you an answer for that. And at the same time, the Spirit just opened my questioning, wrestling mind with God and said, same thing, Karen. Mm -hmm. You're asking the same kinds of questions, but you're lacking the spiritual depth. You're lacking the knowledge of the heart of God. Your maturity in Him has not come to a place where your questions are answerable. But keep asking because Mm -hmm. you're safe with all your questions with God. A moment ago, you mentioned your work as grief coaches and grief educators. We want to talk about that. We'll do that in a moment with Steve and Karen Nicola. I'm John Bradshaw. This is our conversation brought to you by It Is Written. What does the Bible say about astrology? Why do bad things happen to good people? What color is Jesus? If you have a question, we'd love to find an answer for you from the Bible. Line up online from It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Conversations, brought to you by It Is Written. My guests are Steve and Karen Nicola from the ministry Comfort for the Day. How did you guys wind up in ministry? Clearly, the death of your son, your young, your, in, your, your young son had an awful lot to do with that, but it didn't happen quickly. It wasn't that you fell into ministry with any rapid pace. How did it come that later on you ended up doing what you do essentially full-time? What happened? Wow. Good well, question. it really <laughs> began because God was continuing to bring healing in my life okay. uh, through two very specific means. One was through His Word. Mm-hmm. And the other was through putting my thoughts, my questions, my emotions, my process onto paper. We called it journaling in those days. And so every day I journaled and every day there was scripture that spoke to that day's experience. So I would write out the scripture and then I would respond in my own life experience. And as that began to just bring the space to breathe and healing was starting to take place... It began to occur to me, you know, if this is so effective for me, I need to share this with other people. A question for you. 
you became aware that healing was taking place. Mm-hmm. How were you aware that healing was taking place? What that looked like or feel like in your experience? It looked like the transition from every the world being in gray, black and white tones to being able to see the color. Mm-hmm. It's in color again. To be able to embrace um, the joy of other people and not feel like that's not fair. It came because my faith was finding root again in the goodness of God. My intention was to find out what is the character, the true character of God. Mm. Because so many people would say that God took your baby. And that did not settle with me. And so I needed to find out, is God some Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde? Or why do we say the things we do? And when it finally resolved from my heart that an enemy has done this. Yes, that's right. Leukemia took my son's life, not God. God, on the other hand, is the one who's saying, I'm traveling with you through this dark valley. But the verse that really had me in the place that I had to say yes or no to, the promise, was Psalms 147.3 where he says, I heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. Either that's a mockery to every brokenhearted soul, or it is a true thing. And I chose to stand that it was a true thing. So I chose to believe that God was true to his word, good for his word, and he is. He is. So as he brought me through these opportunities of putting my my pain on paper and of journaling, oh, it was probably a year and a half after Dawson had died that the thought came, Karen, you need to put this in a book. You need to give the word of God, the scriptures that have spoken to you, with the opportunity for people to put their own pain on paper. So this could be a tool for others. We didn't need to tell our story, because our story wouldn't bring comfort or healing to another. It might help someone say, oh, I'm not alone. But at that space in my life, it was so much more important that people got connected to the comfort of God through his word. Now, grief is this extraordinarily difficult thing. But it's different, different for different people and in different situations, right? If you're older and you lose an elderly parent, that's, that's really sad. But it's not a tragedy. If they're in their 90s, it's not a tragedy. It's a pretty good innings, and you were so blessed to have that parent for 50, 60, 70 years, whatever you did. So you look at it differently. Lose a child, it's a horse of a different color. So let's talk about what people, because this is what you deal with, right? This is your bread and butter. You deal with grief coaching and counseling and, and helping people through and sharing from the Bible, enabling people to experience the healing that God offers. So what is it that people deal with when they're going through grief? And the reason I ask this is because it's important that we are able to relate to others who are grieving in a very healthy way. What do people deal with? I know, I know it differs. It differs. Well, it, differed, it like? differed even between Karen and I. We lost oh, yeah. we lost the same son, sure. but we grieved his loss very differently. What would that look like? Well, Karen was uh, was a very private griever. I'm a little more. I can cry reading through the phone book sometimes. Yeah, okay. Um, she was a firstborn. I was in very much the person that would be taking charge. I was a middleborn. 
um, she was a, she had a mother son relationship. I had a father son. So we had different expectations and dreams and hopes for our child. That's a really important point because if parents lose a child, I can imagine there may even be some conflict. Why don't oh, you feel like oh. I feel? Why aren't you dealing it like with it like I'm dealing with it? Well, and so I mean, in the months after after Dawson died, I would I would go off to work, leaving right. Karen at home. Right, right, right. You know, with a baby. Big difference, eh? And some days there were some days though, John. I was it was so hard. I would be driving to work. And I would stop the car, turn around, and come home. I was, it was that hard. I could not go out and see people that day because my work involved visiting families in their homes with children, and it was just too hard. And so I would just come home. But there were many times I'd have wonderful experiences with people out in the community that I was visiting, and I'd come home all charged up, this is wonderful, and Karen maybe not had had such a great day. And so... Or just the opposite. I would come home, you know, still feeling extremely sad about, you know, not having my son. And Karen had had a very good day. And so it was kind of this dumbwaiter thing sometimes where she was up and I was down or I was down and she was up. And nobody explained that to us. We didn't have anybody to walk us through that to say, you know what, what you're experiencing, that's normal. But we didn't feel normal. It's not a normal emotion. Grief is not a normal emotion. Those of you that are listening to this and have experienced deep emotion and grief, you know that it's almost like an emotional epicat. You, you, your body wants to rid yourself of this horrible feeling and pain that you have that you can't get rid of. Then we keep in mind that humans weren't created to experience grief. No, they weren't. In the beginning, we were created before death. Grief, we weren't yeah. designed to deal with grief, and so it's going to hurt like crazy. It's an alien emotion. It is, yeah. It's an alien emotion. So, so I don't know how easy this is, but I'm going to ask you anyway. You mentioned before people saying God took your son, which is mm. just a disastrous thing to say. And as you referenced Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the wheat and the tears, an enemy has done this. So that's that. What are some of the things that people say that they shouldn't? <laughs> well, one I mean, that came to, came to us was... Um, Oh well, you you can have more children. You can have another baby, and not realizing that there's no human life on this planet that is replaceable. That's right. And so having another child doesn't take that spot in my heart that's only designed for Dawson. Yeah. Uh, they say things like, "Oh, I'm so sorry," and then it's all about them. And then I need to. Oh, it's okay. I'll be okay, because they're all, oh, I'm so sorry. So what you're saying is that, that they are doing their grieving or expressing their their pain. You're the one who's going through the pain, and they've, they've, some they've people, assumed that role. And some people will, and, and we don't fault anybody for, for saying things sometimes that they shouldn't say. Yeah, because I think that's important. No one, no one came with the pre-programmed to know exactly what to well, say. That's exactly what we say. Which None, is why not, we do the work we, we do. We do the work <laughs> we do is we educate people on, on how to better say it. But we let people know that if, you're, if, if the people you're talking to, and you don't say it right, but they know your heart, you're still going to be. It's better to show up and maybe not say it quite right than yeah. to not show up at all. Yeah. A lot of people don't show up at all, and that's the most painful. Uh, I believe that when people talk, start putting words in in people's mouths like, well, God would want you to feel this way or, or or your mommy wouldn't want you to cry or um you know they're in a better place now and um 
you know, these kinds of, they're really just platitudes. Yeah. And they're really just a momentary blip to get us out of an uncomfortable situation and we can be on our way. You said people ought to show up. Here's the thing, though. Some of us are awkward about this. And we feel like, I don't want to intrude on your grief. Maybe I wouldn't be welcomed here. So talk about people showing up. What this isn't this is kind of the, what not to do is is to be absent. What to, how do you how do, do show that? up? How do you show up? Showing up is so important, and it's not as hard as we think it is. Here's the number one thing to remember: we think that if we show up, we're going to make them sad, we're going to make them cry, we're going to make them remember, and their grief is going to be harder. They're already remembering. They're already sad. They, they, you're showing up and mentioning Dawson's name to us is the most beautiful thing you could do. You're, Steve's going to share a story about someone who just showed up and practically said nothing. But here's, here's the point is that unless we want to come in and step on the toes of a brokenhearted person, if we're brave enough to step into their pain and just be with another person, we don't have to fix it. We don't have to have the answers. We don't even need to have a Bible verse. We can just come alongside and in our quietness let them know that we care. We often say that Job's three friends were amazing comforters for the first week. When they said nothing. And then they open their mouths. Yeah. As soon as they open their mouth, they, they begin to speak for God, they begin to speak for themselves, and it all went south from there. The idea of just showing up. I remember um, about a week or two before our son died, we had a lady in our community that we didn't know real well. She had children about the same age as ours. We were fairly new to the community at that time. And she called us up and said, I'd like to stop by for a moment. And we go, yeah. I mean, he was actively in full-on you know, relapse, and we just knew it was, we were just counting days at that point. And she shows up, and she walked in, and she sat down, and we, she's very quiet, kind of introverted sort, introverted sort of lady. And we sat there like we're doing right now, and she didn't have anything to say, really. And we said, this is really awkward, you know. And eventually she goes, can I pray with you? And she had a short little prayer, and she got up and left. And we looked at each other and we said, that was kind of awkward, you know. But later on, we begin to think, John, this woman did the most courageous thing anybody could do at our worst, almost. She chose to enter into our world of pain and at least be present. And I bumped into her church several years ago and I pulled her aside. And I said, I need to let you know how much, in retrospect, your visit meant more than anybody else. The less we say, the better. I remember in church when they, they shared that our son had relapsed and it was probably going to die. And many, many people in our church were coming to us and we had a lot of voices, a lot of people saying things. I can't tell you one thing anybody said that day except for one woman. Oh. This one woman was walking down. Her name is Pat. And she had tears in her eyes. And she walked up to me and she just, she was a mother, and, you know, and... Uh, because you'll only be my mother, and she just held me. She just held me, and then let go and walked out of the out of the room. Never said a word. I don't remember anything, but I always remember Pat's hug. 
And contrary to that, after Dawson died, I was walking down the hallway at church and someone was coming my direction. We were going to meet. And as soon as our eyes made contact, she turned the other way. Oh. And it may have been something else on her mind or whatever, but my interpretation was is that she would be too uncomfortable to pass me, to talk with me, and to, to just be with me in my sorrow. And so there's so many myths around grief support. And one of those myths is that, well, we just need to let the grievers have their time to grieve. And I think that myth is developed because we're so uncomfortable with pain. Yeah, we tell, we, and we were, uh, we were talking about this just this weekend, and we had an emergency room doctor in, at the church that we were just at doing our seminar at. And I asked him, I said, if, um, what's the best time for someone to come in and see you if they break their femur? Should they wait before they get help? Or should they come in right away and get support? It's not never too soon to, to, have, to give support. Where the, the caveat is, we need to be able to ask gentle questions to find out, is this okay that we're here? Is this hard? If it's too hard, let us know, and we'll leave, you see. But you'll find that the majority of people are thankful that someone's in their space. They don't want to be alone in their grief. They're going to have plenty of time crying in their pillow at nighttime when you're not there. So when people choose to enter into your world of pain, what a gift. And so those things, John, I find are really, really helpful. And Karen, I've found that being present um, not a, and never letting it be about us. So often we, we try to harmonize. Oh, I, I had somebody I knew that lost somebody just like you did. And somehow... That... Or I know just what you feel like. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, our own stories bubble forth and we go rattling on about something about our lives. When the, when the brokenhearted, devastating, traumatized human being is just sitting there, you know, just taking in someone else's story. And so it really... Steve, don't you think it's just a, really a matter of just being able to put ourselves away? Out of the picture, yeah. And just be there with them without making assumptions. And so if I don't know, I just simply ask, you know, how's your grief today? Mm -hmm. Do you want somebody to be with you right now? And if they say no, not right now, then we can move away. You see, it's just, just simple, courteous questions that come out of a heart that really wants to know. So let's, let's look at this from the other angle. We've got about a minute and a half before the break. So in that short time, let's get started on this. Someone has entered into grief. There's been a terrible loss. All losses are terrible. How do you go about grieving in a healthy way? Wow. I think Karen can answer that best because yeah. she's worked with a little more than I have. I will say before she starts, I think the main thing that we can give people is hope. Is that if you had, again, broken your femur... And you'd also, and I broke mine, you'd also broken yours, but now you're well down the road on recovery. You can say, Steve, this is hurting really bad. I can guarantee you that it won't always hurt this bad. Okay, well, let, let's leave it there and pick it up in just a moment because clearly there's a way through grief. Clearly there is. Um, and the one thing was we must never forget is that God understands something about grief. The Bible calls him, calls him the God of all comfort. And so we know that if we approach this with God, Somehow, 
we are going to get through. They are Stephen Karen Nicola. I am John Bradshaw. This is our conversation. Thousands of years ago, on a lonely island, a weathered hand wrote words of divine instruction to the early Christians. One by one, these inspired messages from God admonished, counseled, and encouraged six different churches in the ancient world. Finally, Jesus addressed the seventh and last church, the church of Laodicea. His closing words to Laodicea served as a parallel warning to the church that would exist at the close of Earth's history. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. You say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Don't miss the final episode of the Seven Churches of Revelation series, Laodicea. Discover how a broken church can eventually dine with Christ at His table. The Seven Churches of Revelation, Laodicea, brought to you by It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Conversations, brought to you by It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw. My guests are Steve and Karen Nicola from Comfort for the Day. And this is the book that's been in circulation for some time. It's a wonderful resource. Look at this, Comfort for the Day, Living Through the Seasons of Grief. And we could we could even talk about the seasons of grief. But Karen, I wanted to come back to you and pick up on the question we asked a moment ago. Somebody is approaching grief. It's this avalanche that has fallen down upon them. You talked about existing in the gray earlier, about how life, uh, at least what I took from you, had lost its sparkle. Uh, how, do you, how, do, how does a person get through this? And, and, and I'm pretty certain some people don't, and it just consumes them. Absolutely right. Our culture that we live in is filled with myths about how to grieve. And it tells us to numb it, stuff it, drink it, distract it. It tells us, you grieve alone in your space. Don't bring it to work. Don't bring it to church. I don't want to be in that pain with you. And so grievers supported by the cultural norms are not going to get the healing benefit. They Mm. just won't. They'll get stuck and move into places of addiction that they may have never, ever had before. Mm -hmm. So um, to be able to engage with our grief, recognize, on the one hand, while it's abnormal because death was never a part of what our lives should be, right? it is a necessary experience. What I find really interesting is I've talked to people for years, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing much better, Pastor. I, I, haven't, I didn't cry today. I'm doing better because I didn't cry. And I'll say to people, if you need to cry, you ought to cry. I cry for a year if you need to. Isn't there something fundamentally unhealthy about feeling like there must be a stiff upper lip and you've got to put on some type of facade rather than allowing grief to happen? Well, I believe that, particularly us in the Christian world, we believe that um, because we believe that Jesus is coming soon and because we are saved you know, through grace, that we shouldn't be sad when a loved one dies. But again, death is not normal. No. And so... We tell we we kind of share the story sometimes about the fact that sometimes we will say, "Well, you shouldn't feel so sad because Jesus is coming soon, and well, He is." Well, the Bible says we don't grieve as others do who have no hope, but it doesn't say we don't grieve. 
Well, and there's the space between right now when our loved one dies and when Jesus does come. Sure. This is where we live right now, yeah. is in the in-between, John. And so, yeah, someday Jesus may be like telling somebody who's sitting on a red-hot stove, well, someday Jesus is going to come and turn the stove off. But right now he needs us to turn the stove off and for us to apply healing, for us to be the listening ears and hugs of Jesus until he does put an end to all sin and suffering. But he's put us here on planet Earth to be to be comforters of each other. That's his. It's not an option for us, but... As you mentioned earlier, we're not hardwired to know how to do that. And so it's a it's a learn process to know how to come along somebody and enter into their pain and realize that all we're going to do is just help them and, and recognize that they are in pain. Many people, that's all they want to know. You can't fix their grief. You can't take away their pain. But you can acknowledge that they're in pain and let them know that you're so sorry that they're going through this experience. Now, I notice here in your book, Comfort for the Day, Living Through the Seasons of Grief, which I must let you know is available from It Is Written. You can go to itiswritten.shop and find this very good resource right there. You'll be happy if you do that. Um, living through living through the seasons of grief. Now, um, the very well-known stages of grief, the seven stages of grief, which are, which are well-known, but they're only so reliable, I think, because people do grieve differently. And, good and, question. You know, I don't know about that. Can I mention something about that? What I'd like, yes, please do. And what I'd like you to do is talk about the seasons of grief, as opposed to the stages of grief. Absolutely, uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross yes. created this observation. She she observed that people go through these stages of grief as she was observing terminal patients. Well, that made a lot of sense because you had a beginning point of a diagnosis and an end point of death. I tried for a long time put my grief into her model and it never worked no. because there's not a beginning and an end point if you open up that book to page 12 and 13 you're going to see a bereavement spiral and things keep repeating themselves like seasons do I had the winter of my grief the first year of Dawson's death and the winter came another time and a spring came another time and a summer and a fall, and seasons are cyclical. Stages come, start, begin, and end. But grief doesn't work that way. And healthy healing grief will step back and say, I don't need to apply these stages of grief to my life because they were not intended to apply to my grief. I'm a living person who's living through someone else that I've loved and cared about that was important to me, their death. They had their end. But now I'm continuing to live through life. And I will have opportunities for the rest of my life that will trigger a pain, a moment, a memory, a joy. You still have those? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if we've loved, the best I could concur is that love does not die. So my love for Dawson will never have an end. And that means I won't know when the next wave of grief or the next trigger will come from. But the thing that I begin to learn and would want grievers to understand is that when we lean into our grief, when we accept the pain, when we accept all of the rainbow of feelings and not push one aside 
One that Christians often have a difficulty with is when they're feeling the anger that someone has left them. They can feel abandonment. They can feel anger because they're disappointed that their prayer to God didn't get answered in the right way. They can be angry at themselves because they didn't do the right thing. I was so angry one day, putting my little daughter to bed in her crib. And she's just at that stage where napping was almost not worth it. But I needed the break. So I'd put her in her bed, go downstairs. Ah, She'd be back up, put her back in. Three or four times that happened. And finally, the last time, I just, stay in bed, Joanna. We're not getting up. And I was cross, and I was angry, and I knew that I was not my normal mama self. So I went to my journal, and I started to write how angry I was at Joanna because she wasn't napping. And then I went, oh, no, I'm not really angry at Joanna. I'm angry at Steve because he's off working. And I kept writing and going, no, 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 no. I'm not really angry at Steve. I love my husband. I am really angry at Dawson Mm, for dying and leaving me with this pain. And I continued to see, this is what the process of, of, of journaling, of putting our stuff on paper does. I realized I wasn't angry at Dawson. Of course not. I was angry at God. Sure. And I, and I expressed my anger at him. I expressed my disappointment. I saw him as having a chest big enough that I could beat on as long as I needed to. And I closed my journal. The safest place for us to take these gnarly feelings is to paper. Is there an unhealthy way to grieve? And I'm asking this question in behalf of the person who's watching right now and saying, oh, yeah, but man, I've got this brother. He just won't get over it. And and you make of that what you will, and he just won't get over it. And won't, And it's been so long now. Not that I think anyone's qualified to judge how long a person should grieve, but is there an unhealthy way to grieve? Well, what would that look like? There's a lot of people who become defined by their grief, John. Uh, they find that they get a lot of people kind of open the doors and the Red Sea kind of parts for them because they're, they've had this loss. We've spoken with people who who kept talking about the death of a husband or a wife, and we thought it was just a few weeks ago. Come to find out it was eight or nine, ten years ago. Oh, well. And they're still living it as if it had just happened. Um, and so, yeah, that's not healthy because we're not able to live fully in the moment. And we tell, I work with, with, with gentlemen on online who are, they say, I, I, I'm so angry and I will always be angry and it will always be this bad. And we're saying that we can best help and you know grieve well by honoring our loved ones who have died by living well. Sure. And I know Karen's got a few more things to add to Yeah, I really do. Um, One of the cycles that keeps us in that center of the spiral is when we are blaming, shaming, having bitterness, anger towards others in our grief story who have hurt us, and feeling the regret and the woulda, coulda, shoulda's and the if-onlys, and, and, and we're just, it's like a whirlpool. We just go round and round and round. And that's unhealthy grief because the only way to assuage those thoughts and feelings is to distract ourselves, is to medicate it, is to shop a lot, is to maybe go to every mission trip that's possible. I mean, we can even do good things, but if we're distracting ourselves from the spaces in our heart that are filled with shame and regret. So 
How do we get out of that cycle when someone's been there for so long they just can't get through it? The pathway is forgiveness. Forgiveness is God's pathway that converts unhealthy grief into healthy grief. Forgiveness of whom by whom? All of the above. Accepting forgiveness from God for our own woulda, coulda, shoulda's guilt. If onlys. And I had that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a perfect mom. I don't know a perfect parent, a perfect spouse. I don't know anybody. Any relationship is bound to have things that I'm responsible for that has not made it best. So accepting that gift of forgiveness transforms my life. So I'm free. I'm cleansed from that guilt. I don't have to carry that with me any longer. And then if there are people in our grief story who have brought us pain, like the one story of a young 13-year-old whose 17-year-old stepbrother was murdered in their home by Mm. a buddy, and it destroyed the family in her 40s. She knew that her life path had been an avoidance of her grief. She didn't know how to grieve well. She didn't know how to handle it. And when she discovered that forgiveness was the pathway, she said, Karen, I'm not ready. I can never forgive that man. Because there's a sensation that if I hold on to that bitterness, if I hold on to that resentment, then I'm punishing them. And That's right. That's right. I only have so many ways to strike back. And by choosing not to forgive is me elevating the seriousness of what they've done, honoring the memory of my loved one. It's the only power I have over that person, except, except it's no power. They have power over you. Exactly. And she came to realize that she was in her own prison of bitterness and resentment. And it was holding her life back. It wasn't doing anything to him. So just as about six months later, she came to me and she said, I have to tell you what happened last weekend. I was camping. I was hot. We got in the water and the river was just flowing past me. And she said, right then, I realized that as this water flows over my body, so can the forgiveness of God Mm. wash me clean from that bitterness. And I chose to forgive. I have two questions. One is, what's the end point? I'm grieving something has happened. I've lost somebody or somebody's. Where do I hope to get to? What, you know, where am I landing here? Well, yeah, I don't know if there is an exact end point. I think we will be missing and loving our, 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 deceased loved ones until Jesus comes, John. Sure. But I believe the end point is is that every day we live a little more and a little more in the faith of the hope and the comfort that God gives us. There's a lot of questions that we'll have. I, I know I've told a lot of the people I work with that, you know, someone shared with me that we come to God with everything, you know, when we're trying to find out all those things that are the hard questions about God, we come to Him not with everything we don't know, but let's come and try to find God with, with a little bit that we do know. And as they do use that, especially in the same area of, of grieving, when we take what we know to work and work with that every day, it begins to grow. Um, when it might be for you would be very different than for someone else because of the nature of the relationship and those sort of things. Will you want to do that, Amy? I love your question, Don. There is a beautiful endpoint described in Isaiah 61. But the end point that he gives us here is they, 
the brokenhearted that he has comforted, that he has transformed their ashes into beauty and their mourning into joy and their despair into, into, into beautiful things. He's the one that creates beauty out of the, the pain and the difficulty and the trauma. So trusting that he is faithful to do that is coming into that endpoint place. But then it says they, these transformed grievers, mourners, brokenhearted, they will be called mighty oaks. Mm. Mighty oaks. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And so I think God's endpoint for us on this planet that's so hopeful is that he says, I can bring healing. I can bring beauty out of the worst, most destructive pain you've ever experienced. And then you, you get to stand as a sentinel, as a mighty oak that spreads out its trees, that welcomes the birds and the squirrels and provides shade for other people. God can be glorified, can't he, even in a person's grief. Absolutely. And that person demonstrates that God is their strength and their their help. Okay, in the the couple of minutes we've got, um, I attend your seminar, I read your book, what's the takeaway? I want them to know that God is good, that our traumas and sadness and grief does not mean he has abandoned us. And so when we're tempted to think ill of God, to, to walk down those paths of lies about him because we're hurting, it is our dream, our hope, our goal that encountering the scriptures that guide people in their grief experience, they will know that God is good. I love the fact that, you, that you've written the book. I know you've written it for some years. It's been around. It's been widely circulated, but never enough. I'm thankful for what you are doing. Uh, this is certainly God's work. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for being here. Appreciate that very much. Thank you. And thank you. Great to have had you along uh, with Steve and Karen Nicola from Comfort of the Day Ministries. I'm John Bradshaw, and this has been our conversation.